Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. We're glad to have you with us again today as we look forward to talking about a very important subject, something that is critical for the life and health of local churches, which is church discipline. But before we get into that, we want to tell you a little bit about what's coming up. Uh, you probably know by now, if you've been following us for very long, that we do have our our 2023 National Conference scheduled for January of the year ahead. It'll be here in Southwest Florida, a great place to be uh, in the winter months. And we are looking forward to having Joel Beakey and Paul Washer and Vody Balkum here to be some of our main speakers. And we've also just added Bradley Pierce to come and speak. The theme is What is Man? Biblical Anthropology, which is a massively important topic because uh, today we're just losing that. It's like, you know, people can decide what, what they are man woman or anything in between or neither and uh, we need to come back to what the scripture says not assume this and and look into the word of God to see how God has ordered creation and ordered his image bearers so Bradley was with us um, a few weeks ago I think on the sword and trial right yep yeah and he's an attorney um, and he was uh, representative of that case that the abortion bill that came before the Louisiana State House Um, we spoke about that um Bill, we spoke about the ERLC and the pro-life movement and how they kind of torpedoed that bill. Mm-hmm. Um, just a very articulate man, uh, someone who knows the issues well when it comes to abortion and the pro-life movement and abolition and all that. So grateful to have him uh, for this year's conference. Yeah, he's a, he's a faithful churchman as well out of Texas, right outside of Austin, Texas, I, I think. So a constitutional attorney, and he actually wrote the bill, I think, for mm-hmm. the Louisiana uh legislature that got spiked, but a wonderful, thoughtful Christian man. So he'll be joining us talking about the doctrine of man for preborn children. And then we've also got some others that'll be uh, with us during that time. I'm really excited about this as well. Uh, My brother, Bill Askell, and Fred Malone and Tom Nettles will be joining us, and we're going to have a special panel because next year, 2023, is the 40th anniversary of Founders Ministries, and you'll hear more about that in the months ahead as we get closer to the conference, but the uh, four of us are the last ones that are part of the uh, ongoing beginnings of founders. And so we're going to talk about that. We'll just have a wonderful conversation about what God's done over those four decades. And uh, I'm sure if you've been following founders for a long time, you'll you'll learn some things. And especially if you've not found, followed us very long, you'll be able to get some insider information of things that perhaps uh, you've never heard before. But these are wonderful, godly men. And I look forward to welcoming them on that panel discussion as well. 40 years is a long time. It is. It's longer than you've been alive. So where were you when we started? Much longer than I've been. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Predates me by, you know, almost a decade. Um, And yes, it's interesting to think of founders as being one of those long-term ministries that uh, predates the Young, Restless, and Reform movement uh, by a couple decades, actually. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, And I was excited about that Young, Restless, Reform movement at the beginning and, you know, seeing encouraging things. And uh, we've talked about it since then. I I think it wasn't nearly as reformed as uh, many of us had hoped. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of superficiality, Uh, not that good stuff didn't come from it and some real good things, good guys uh, did come to a clear understanding of scripture. But a lot of guys jumped on board simply because it was cool. Yeah. Uh, cool to be a Calvinist. Jonathan Edwards was my homeboy, you know, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. You uh, know, I, I was reminded, I was thinking about this um, earlier and you know, people say, don't, uh, don't get your theology from Twitter. And I don't think that's 
the danger is there because you can't get good substance out of Twitter or there's not people who don't really know what they, they're talking about on Twitter. Um, but the temptation is when you're living your life on Twitter and you're getting your theology from Twitter, you're tempted to just go along with whatever the fad is at yeah. the moment. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a, that's a temptation that we all need to look out for. And I think that's largely what had happened in the Young Restless and Reform Movement. There was, it was very faddish, yeah. and the fad has moved on to something different now. That's right. That's right. And so uh, anyway, I mean, praise God for all the good that's done because God's work on earth is never unmixed, and mm-hmm. uh, that's true for us individually as Christians. It's also true for any movement or any church or yeah. any institution that is seeking to do work that would uh, honor and glorify him. It's always mixed because we're in a fallen world. So anyway, we'll be talking more about that uh, as we get closer to the conference and and, then at the conference as we talk about the role of founders and the work of founders over Mm -hmm. four decades that included, uh, has included that young restless reform movement. We also have a special uh, offer going on until August the 15th. Uh, you have heard us talk about this uh, new T-shirt that Founders is producing called, it has on there, We Have a Book, which is so simple and so clear, and it has opened up evangelistic conversations. We, we've heard that. I, I had one the first time I wore my shirt. I was going to uh, Anaheim, California, get off the plane within five or ten minutes. Uh, I had a Hindu guy say, what book are you talking about? That's why well, I'm glad you asked. And so it just opened up the door to share the gospel. And I've heard from others who've had those kind of conversations. So this could be uh, useful in that regard. But it's just a good reminder to Christians that God has given us his word. So if you will join in supporting founders, which we appreciate all of our fan members, and that's why we can do what we do is because people partner with us in this ministry. But if you would partner with us at the sword or ally level, then we'll send you a free copy of this We Have a Book t-shirt. And if you just like to buy that t-shirt, you can go to founders.org, get on the store and uh, see ways that you can do that as well. And if we get a hundred new members in the next week, we will publish a book called We Have a Shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding, that's not true. We have a shirt. No, I don't think so. Well, what we want to talk about today is one of the marks of a church. Mm. This is something that came out of the Reformation, that very language. You know, what constitutes a church? You can drive down any... uh, town road in America, and you can see most likely references to a church. You can get on the internet, you can Google church, you come up with thousands of uh, places that you could go and people call themselves a church. But not everybody that calls themselves a church is a church, and not every sign that says church uh, is advertising honestly according to what the New Testament says a church is. And so there are marks of a church. And out of the Reformation, one of those marks that was identified as essential to the uh, essence of a church is discipline, church discipline. And discipline tends to have a bad connotation in our day. You know, it just sounds negative, mm-hmm. it sounds harsh, but that's not true in any area of life. I mean, discipline is positive as well as, yes, at times negative, but it's certainly the case in the life of the church. God causes people to be conformed to Christ, and he provides ways for us to be conformed to Christ. And in that process of being conformed to Christ, we have this work that we're responsible to participate in that goes under the the broad heading of discipline. So we want to talk about church discipline here, both formative and corrective. 
And too often when people hear church discipline, they're mm-hmm. only thinking about, oh, you kick people out of the church, mm-hmm. you know, or you tell people that they are not welcome anymore. Anathema. Yeah, you know, and that's, uh, that is such a, a wrong way to think about this. So, Graham, you've grown up with this, and you've seen this in the church here. You've helped lead our congregation in practicing church discipline. We tell people whenever they seek membership here, uh, this is something that we do. We take seriously. We think it's essential. And uh, it's not always painless. I mean, it's never painless. And sometimes it's incredibly uh, difficult to navigate the exact steps that we ought to take. And people can debate the specifics sometimes. And good men might disagree on exactly timing and how and when. But the responsibility of a church to be disciplined is indisputable, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, discipline is always difficult. There's not a time when it's not difficult. That's that's kind of one of the hallmarks of discipline and, and any kind of discipline. I mean, you think of self-discipline, um, whether you are on a diet or you are working out or you're disciplining yourself to learn a new um, a new trade or something like that. It's it's always going to be difficult. And so it is with, with church discipline. But, you know, Psalm 1 promises us that the way of blessing is meditation and obedience to the law of God. And, and mm-hmm. God has commanded us to do this. Um, mm-hmm. God has commanded us to discipline ourselves, to discipline one another, both in corrective and formative discipline. So though it is always difficult, sometimes more difficult than others, it is always the way of blessing. Yeah. Because yeah. it's what's God, what God has given us to do. And in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, it says that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and mm-hmm. uses the analogy taken from Proverbs about uh, what father that loves his child won't discipline him. And of mm-hmm. course, we do that because we want what is good for our children. And if you don't discipline your children, Proverbs says you actually hate them. You know, yeah. that, that's, uh, that's a sign not of love when you say, oh, I just love my kids too much. I can't. Uh, correct them or can't do what would uh, maybe cross them. That's not love. Real love cares enough to try to form, to try to help, to try to correct. So in church life, discipline, one of the marks of a church includes both positive form, forming discipline, formative discipline, and then the negative corrective discipline. And I think what you said about personal discipline is uh, often overlooked as well. Mm-hmm. Every Christian is called, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 4, 7, to train ourselves in godliness. We are, yeah. to, we are to be actively, consciously thinking about becoming more godly. And the analogy that is used there, both in the language and he goes on in the next verse, say that uh, you know physical training has benefit for this life. It's, mm-hmm. it's useful, but only for this life. But godliness has benefit for this life and the life to come. So you think about physical training. You know, if you've ever wanted to run a race or you've ever wanted to play a sport or to enter into a competition, uh, you don't just show up on the day mm-hmm. of the game and say, okay, you know, put me in, coach. You got to you got to practice. You got to yeah. get better. You got to say no to some things and say yes to some things. Yeah. You know, every time the Olympics roll around, it's just a great opportunity to, to hear those stories of these athletes, you know, how they get up every morning. Some, you know, they'll, they'll have those little vignettes and you know, five o'clock in the morning, you know, she's out running the, the roads and mm-hmm. lifting weights. And, you know, her friends are uh, at the movies and eating popcorn. But, you know, here she is. She's just disciplining herself for mm-hmm. the hope of bringing home a gold medal. And yeah. we are to have that mentality with regard to godliness. Yeah. We want to grow in godliness. Yeah, Paul often um, compares the Christian life to 
athletics um, to, you know, I beat my body in submission, you know, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak mm-hmm. knees, um, comparing it to boxing, comparing it to running, et cetera. And it's hard work. And, yeah. and there's a progressive nature to it. And we see this in, in sanctification, there's progressive nature um, to discipline, self-discipline, church discipline, whereas one um, gets better, one is sanctified more and more over time as discipline continues to progress as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, church discipline starts with the individual, starts with self-discipline. And each each Christian needs to be committed to every day disciplining themselves in godliness, disciplining themselves to be in prayer, to be in the word. Um, it's part of human nature that our minds stray, um, you know, we're still in the flesh, and so we are prone towards weakness and sin, and so we have to discipline ourselves to not give in to temptation, not to give in to sin. So so I think church discipline really does start with the individual, um, but the Lord has placed us in a body, the Lord has placed us into a community for a reason, and that's where formative and corrective discipline come in. Yeah, that's exactly right, and this this plays into the, the significance of regenerate church membership. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so frustrating if you try to implement what the Bible teaches about church discipline, both formative and corrective, and we'll unpack that in just a moment, if you're doing it with people that don't have the life of Christ in them. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. So if they're not concerned about godliness, they're not concerned about becoming more and more like Jesus, then to say, hey, this is what is needed for you to grow more and more like Jesus it's uh, it's like beating a dead horse. There's no life there. There's not going to be any response. So part of formative discipline for the life of the church is to practice regenerate church membership. We would mm-hmm. argue that as free church, Baptist uh, tradition people, and making sure to the best of our ability that those who come in are one with us in their commitments to Christ. But formative discipline takes place in numerous ways. They're not always things that can be... Uh, specifically identified. You know, yeah. you don't have a class on here are seven formative discipline actions that you need to take. Though, as our church right now, we do have a class going on for spiritual disciplines and yeah. what is involved in growing in grace. And so mm-hmm. we want to encourage that individually, but it's a part of the work of the church because we watch out for one another. We mm-hmm. help one another get to heaven. We yeah. We protect and guide and guard each other's discipleship. Yeah, so that formative discipline happens in our church um, Sunday mornings. We have Sunday school. Um, Sunday mornings we have our Sunday morning worship service. Sunday evening we have our worship service. Wednesday evening we have a prayer service. And so those are uh, formal times in which we meet together and the word is preached, the word is sung and prayed. Um, people will come together for fellowship. Those are times in which formative discipline is happening. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people, Christians are built up in the, in the faith. Um, but then there are more informal times in which formative discipline happens as well. And people are able to encourage one another um, in hospitality in one another's homes, in um, discipleship groups that people go through a book of the Bible or, or some other book together. Mm-hmm. They're able to encourage and exhort one another, being open with one another about our sins and how can I pray for you in, in overcoming this temptation or that sin. Um, and so that formative discipline is really key for the individual, but it also knits the congregation together. Yeah, that's right. Because we help one another and bearing one another's burdens. All those one another passages in the New Testament actually could be uh, put together under this heading of formative discipline. One passage that I think of when we talk about and teach on formative discipline is Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul describes the gifts that Christ gives to churches. And he speaks of those gifts and the, the ones that were supernatural and for a time period when the New Testament was coming together, he gave 
apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, that pastors and teachers are perhaps better translated, pastor teachers, those are ongoing gifts in the normal course of a local church. But the point that I want to call attention to is the next verse. This is Ephesians 4.12. He gives these gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. And it just goes on from there. And you read that and you think Paul has this vision in mind of what individual Christians, church members, ought to become, what the process is for them becoming that. They're being formed into the image of Christ. They're being made Christ-like. And that happens in the life of community, in the life of the church. So that's the bulk of discipline in the Christian life, in the church's life. It's not primarily corrective. It's Mm -hmm. primarily formative. And where formative discipline is being intentionally carried out with thoughtfulness, with intentionality, with biblical rigor, that is, we're, we're not doing things and saying, hey, we're making, you know, we're, we're helping to make disciples over here because we're teaching tennis lessons or we're teaching underwater mm-hmm. uh, scuba diving or whatever it might be. Those, those things can be fine. But we say, what does the Bible tell us is uh, inherent in becoming godly and becoming Christ-like? Yeah, and um, I think there's a lot of talk about how, you know, the church – Christians were not called to, you know, build the kingdom of God or bring the kingdom or anything like that. And in a sense, yes, that's absolutely true. We're, we're not going to do that ourselves individually. Christ is the one who builds his church. Christ is the one who expands his kingdom. Christ is the one who sanctifies us. So, you know, I can't sanctify you. You can't sanctify me. However, he does use means. And to be able to be used as an instrument of Christ as he builds his church, as he expands his kingdom through discipleship, mm-hmm. just discipling one another to be able to be used by Christ in that manner, whatever privilege that is. Yeah, amen. And, and it can be any number of things. People, You don't have to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be a, a Sunday school teacher. I mean, I, walking yesterday morning, the day before uh, this was being recorded was a Sunday. And uh, I saw a couple of our men, one guy's going through some stuff and another guy just had his hand on his shoulders praying for him. You know, this is before Sunday school. I mean, what's what's happening there? Well, I don't know the details of that, but I can pretty well guarantee what was happening there is this work of formative discipline mm-hmm. that uh, one brother was helping another brother bear his load in an unusual time. And that's what the church should do. We should help each other grow in godliness. And, and where that's happening and people are growing in godliness, that doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. doesn't mean we're going to be sinless and we won't have even serious sins come up. But it does mean that, okay, we're, we're oriented this way, and when the sin disrupts, then we're predisposed to correcting it and to mm-hmm. getting back on the right path. However, uh, the Bible's not naive, and the Bible is not utopian, and so the Bible does teach us that, yes, there can be, there will be times when even with your best efforts, people will drift away. I, I often think of this when I'm preaching in unusual situations and people I don't know when I'm, I'm mm-hmm. in a situation like that, you know, the Lord had 12 disciples and one of them turned out to be a devil. And so we shouldn't think that, Oh, we're all Christians here. This is a Bible conference or this is a church yeah. or we know each other. Uh, well, everybody knew Judas pretty well too, mm-hmm. but he, he turned out to be apostate to, to need the savior. He wasn't with the savior spiritually. He needed the savior. And so we shouldn't be shocked 
when this happens, when you when you read uh, you know the Ephesian elders address that Paul gives in Acts twenty, mm-hmm. from your own number, yeah, you know, men will arise leading people astray. It's sobering thoughts. So because of that, there will be times inevitably in this fallen world where church is going to have to engage to correct those who go astray, and some of them may go astray in very serious ways and very intentional ways and recalcitrant, mm. unwilling to repent. So when that happens, corrective discipline needs yeah. to kick in. People yeah. think that corrective discipline is just purely punitive, but that's not the case at all. Yeah, it's, it's not punitive. It's, it's disciplinary. And there's a difference between discipline and, and punishment. Right. Uh, punishment is a matter of justice. Uh, discipline is a matter of uh, formation. That's right. Um, and before we talk about kind of the, the biblical right way to uh, go about corrective discipline in the church, what are some bad examples of corrective <laughs> discipline that you've seen? Well, I can tell you uh, one that we've seen right here in our local association a few years ago. Uh, it was a big scandal at First Baptist Church in Naples, and uh, you know we dealt with that because we had members of that church calling us, and you know I grieved with several of them, weeping. Some of them were mm-hmm. just horrible things that happened there. And if you can go back and find uh, these, those episodes, there's one or two specific episodes on that. But uh, some of the people I talked to, they said, we, we have been excommunicated from our church. I said, what do you mean? And they sent me emails where the email says, dear so-and-so, you're no longer a member of this church. Do not step on the property again. Wow. Uh, go find yourself another pastor to submit to. Wow. I know. I mean, you've been excommunicated. This is church discipline. Wow. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. So you've got that, and then you've got people that you can find old records of this too. It's been kind of fun. I don't do it much anymore, but when I was a young pastor, I loved to to read old church records, and some of them been published. Um, you you can find Greg Wills did a, a book. His dissertation was on discipline in churches of the Baptist churches in the South, but mm-hmm. you can find them in unpublished records as well online, and uh, they'll talk about you know so and so was dancing so we we churched him you know and he came back and <laughs> repented and then he went dancing again and you know there he he just little things that they're kind of they're they're over the top you know over yeah. the top and so it's a you can do church discipline wrong corrective discipline wrong in a lot of ways yeah but to do it right we, we have a book, and the Bible does tell us we're not left on our own. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to come up with wording on an email to send to people and say, now we're done with you. It's not mm-hmm. that. I mean, the Scripture tells us pretty specifically. And we categorize in our church uh, from reading the Scripture. We categorize the steps in church discipline based upon the seriousness and how public the nature of the action that needs to be corrected is. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between what Jesus says in Matthew 18, verses 15 or yeah, 15 through 20, where he spells out the steps of church discipline, and 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul just says, you know, remove this member from your midst. I mean, it's, it's just decisive, automatic, no steps mm-hmm. here. This is public, scandalous sin needs to be dealt with decisively, immediately. And we try to follow that as well. And sometimes it's not uh, real easy to know where to draw those lines, but you have to draw those lines. So if, for example, so if if there's a situation in a church where a person, a church member is beginning to uh, uh, maybe somebody has seen this person coming out of a strip club 
So what, how should that be handled? If you're a church member, you see a fellow church member walking out of a strip club mm-hmm. one night when you're driving down the road, uh, what would be the right biblical procedure to try to engage that situation? Yeah, well, first off, that doesn't look good, right? It doesn't look good. And uh, so that, that, the believer who's seen that needs to go to that brother first and foremost um, and figure out, okay, is there any way possible yeah. in which what I'm seeing is not just blatant sin? You give the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and and there may be. That's I, right. Right now I can't think of you one. You could be but. in there witnessing. You could look for your daughter. I mean, you know, there's yeah. any number or yeah. somebody that you're trying to rescue. So you just give the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and so that's always the first step because maybe the thing that you thought was sin is not sin. Right. You were just seeing things incorrectly. So you got to get the facts. Yeah. Yeah. If it was sin... Um, and they come to you and they admit, yeah, I was sinning in this area. I, w- I was not there for any good reason. Um, that brother has to be called to repentance, but, um, I think it further needs to be brought to the church because it's a public, That's sin. A public sin. It's a yeah. public sin. And so that, that brother needs to be, um, disciplined, uh, before the church. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, as you go through the the process of church discipline, Matthew eighteen, yeah, certainly there's the go to the brother first, and but even if he repents there on the spot, it still needs to be addressed publicly because it happened publicly. Publicly, yeah, that's a public sin. So let's do another one. Um, so there's a guy that started a business, and uh, he just he's not able to make ends meet if he reports everything the way it ought to be reported and pays the taxes that are required. So he's doing a lot of stuff under the table. And he says, you know, said, uh, man, I tell you, you know, this is, this is really making me nervous. I know, I know it's not right, but I got to do it or else my business is going to fold. And so I just, I've got to do this, you know, and, uh, Hey, would you pray for me? And you know, that, that I'll, I'll be able to weather this to get this up and going. So I don't have to do this anymore. Mm. So he's telling you something he's doing that's secret that's sin, that's wrong, it's illegal. Mm-hmm. So what do you do then? Yeah, so <clears throat> the person who he's confiding into has to call him out and say, listen, like you can't temporarily sin so you can get into a better place. Like <laughs> that's, that's right. never, sin is never the pathway to sanctification. Sin is never the pathway to <laughs> yeah. righteousness, right? Yeah. Um, and so, brother, you need to repent. Uh, but furthermore, you know, th- what does repentance look like for you? Um, maybe going back and paying those back taxes that you mm-hmm. owe to the government? now you get into questions is taxation, theft and all that kind of stuff. But no, I mean, he owes to Caesar. What is Caesar's? That's right. Um, and so that, that needs to take place. And, and if that takes place, you know, that's not necessarily a public sin that's before the world to see. Um, and you know, there may be some wisdom in that brother who has sinned and maybe going before the elders and saying, look, listen, this is what I've done. Um, and so I need to be held accountable on that. But I don't think that that's necessarily something that needs to be brought before the church unless he fails to repent unless yeah. he continues on in that sin. So if he says, you know, you, you tell him this is not right. I mean, first of all, you think, what's going on there? Well, here's a guy that's trusting in his work and his ability to financially cook the books more than he's trusting God. Mm-hmm. And so it's a failure of faith. It's an issue of pride. There's other things mixed in with that. So you know, it's good to diagnose it yourself so you know what you're dealing with, that you can go and try to help him, try to help him see. Mm-hmm. what his sin is. It's not, I'm doing this for my family and this is the only way to make it. There's more, it's, it's between him and God, which yeah. all sin ultimately is. But if he won't hear you again, there's no, Jesus tells us what to do. If he doesn't hear you, then you take two or three others with you and you say, look, uh, this is not right. And what we encourage folks to do is get people that this person is most likely to respect and listen to. We want, mm-hmm. we always want to give the best advantage to the person who is in need of correction 
to be corrected. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes relationships are involved in such a degree that if this person went, it could be misinterpreted. Well, you're just trying to get back at me or, you know, you don't even know me or mm-hmm. you let me down one time. But if you can find someone in the church that there's no doubt this guy's has laid his life out for you multiple times or you know, you know him for a long time and just go mm-hmm. and try to persuade him. And if he's repentant, and praise God. You, you help him to make restitution where it needs to happen, and it's over. But if he doesn't hear now those two or three witnesses, then Jesus says, tell it to the church. Mm-hmm. And that's a you need to have a process in place as a church where that can be done. We do that in our members' meetings. So uh, we, we lead up to it, and then if the person won't repent, we say we want you to know that we are going to follow Jesus and we're going to do what we told you we would do when you joined the church, what mm-hmm. you agreed to participate in doing when you joined the church. And we announce it to the church and we say, you know what? This brother is in a bad way. Uh, he needs help. Would you reach out to him? And if you have a relationship with him particularly, would you go and plead with him mm-hmm. to repent and to come see the elders that we might help him work things out? And then it's interesting in that Matthew 18 passage, Jesus said, and if he refuses even to hear the church, you know, to hear even the church is like, can you imagine anybody doing that? Mm-hmm. But if that happens, then he is to be to you as an outsider. Now, when Jesus uses the word ecclesia there, what he's referring to is the assembly of elders, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll let our Presbyterian friends sort that out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, there it is. It's a church. So yeah. that's why we do what we do. It's, it's, it's far less efficient. It's a great deal messier. But we do believe that it's biblical, and so we, you know, our ecclesiology stems from what we understand that word and its usage to mean in the New Testament. And there's a lot of um, there's a lot of responsibility there then on the elders in shepherding the congreg- congregation in such a way that they can make those decisions right. wisely and That's rightly, right. um, leading the congregation in the points of discipline, but then also just in the normal course of church work, um, discipling a congregation so that they have the wisdom and the biblical knowledge and the moral reasoning to be able to see, okay, this is what needs to be done in this situation. Mm -hmm. And that takes uh, years of long and hard work, faithful laboring in the word Mm -hmm. to ensure that a a congregation can do that. Uh, Which just, you know, brings us back, I think, to that letter that um, some of the members of First Baptist Naples received um, in their excommunication as though they're just being excommunicated by a staff pastor, the church has nothing to say about it. Hey, listen, we don't like you anymore. Go see, go to a different church. And when somebody is under church discipline, you don't call them to go to a different church. Just go find another church that you can fit into. No, what we're saying is we can no longer (laughs) affirm that you're a Christian. You have no business being a member of a church. Come back to this church and repent. And then maybe we can talk about going to another church later after you've been restored, if if that's wise. Um, But you shouldn't, and, and this is one of the reasons why we, I think, have so many messy, messy situations in so many churches is that somebody, a church may be doing church discipline correctly, rightly, a God-honoring way. A, church, a person can be excommunicated from a congregation and then go to another church, and the right. other church has no problem bringing them into membership. Or making him an elder. Yeah, or making him an <laughs> We've elder. We've seen that happen. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's very true. So there's, there's lots of landmines here, but you can navigate through them at least most of them pretty clearly, if you just stick to Scripture. And uh, I've, I've talked to pastors over the years, and I've faced it when I came to this church 36 years ago. They were in no position to practice church discipline, though they desperately needed 
to -hmm. practice corrective discipline. There were cases that needed to be dealt with. So what do you do? If you're a pastor in that situation, you walk into a church, as my brother did many, many years ago, where he found out the guy leading music was sleeping with the organist, and they were both married to different people, you Mm -hmm. know? And I mean, what what do you do there? (laughs) You know, you're, you're there for like three weeks, and this mm-hmm. is throwing your face. Well, uh, you got some choices to make, and you're going to have to navigate it. But just know this, that if uh, the pastor says, all right, this right, I've got to discipline this guy because Jesus tells us to do this. First Corinthians 5 tells us to do this. So I'm calling a meeting, and we're going to tell the church we got to remove this fellow. Well, more than likely, what you got going on is preacher discipline not church discipline. Mm-hmm. And if the church is going to be involved, the church is going to have to be educated. The church yeah. is going to have to be discipled. And so I, I say pretty regularly to younger pastors, look, brothers, uh, you, you're going to have to do the hard work of teaching, recognizing this is wrong, and there may be some ways to mitigate the wrongness to try to you know, keep that from spreading while you don't countenance as being right or good at all. But you got to get the church up to speed so that the church can do what the church is called to do. Mm-hmm. And if you try to take action before that, uh, it's not going to be good. Yeah. It might be preacher discipline, but it's not going to be church discipline, and you can be sure there will be some uh, consequences down the road that you did not anticipate that will not be healthy. So teach the church. This is what it means. When people become members of the church, we, we underscore this because mm-hmm. church discipline is so foreign to so many churches today that many Christians who have been faithful members of other churches have never seen it and they've never even heard about it. And we walk through it with every prospective member and say, do you understand that when you join the church, you're going to be asked to participate in this process, both formatively and correctively if necessary. And if you go wayward, you understand that, that we will have people who will come after you and try to restore you and bring you back on the right path. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of them say yes. And we, we go through a, a formal process where we actually have people write down, you know, their testimonies and why they want to join and other information we ask them. And they check off that they've read our documents and they're in agreement and their agreement with church discipline specifically. And sometimes it's been really helpful mm-hmm. to be able to sit down with somebody who 10 years ago joined the church and filled out all this stuff and show them, say, you remember when you joined, you said you agreed with this, and now you're resisting the very thing you said you agreed with, and have you changed? You, you obviously seem like you don't believe this anymore. You understand why we're doing what we have to do. But whether you do that formally that way or not, uh, I encourage every church, every church leadership to take seriously what it means to become a member of the church so that you lay, that's part of the formative discipline, that you're laying the groundwork if necessary, to uh, carry out corrective discipline down the road. Yeah, and, you know, when we see um, so many churches in such a bad way, and, you know, we've seen even recently um, issues of people who have committed uh, abuse in one church and they just move on to Mm -hmm. another church, uh, usually it's because discipline has not happened correctly. Um, And it's it's a hard thing to do. I think a lot of pastors and elders – um, they see situations and they're like, that's, that's a headache. That's a mess. I don't want to deal with that. We're just going to kind of mm-hmm. smooth over this and <laughs> not talk about it publicly. Um, that's a mistake. It's a mistake for yourself. It's a mistake for your church. It's a mistake for the person who's in sin. It's a mistake for whichever church that they go to. Um, 
And, and so, you know, it, to borrow an analogy from C.S. Lewis, you know, ethics is not just about um, me not harming other people, but I, but I also want to be concerned about my own internal life and what I do because what I do on the inside will affect what I do to other people. Right. So I want to be the kind of person that's not going to harm other people. Well, it's the same thing, I think, for churches as well. I think we, often we become so outward oriented in our evangelism, in our missions, in, in our social work or whatever it is. Um, it, it, we don't, we're not so concerned about the inward health, um, the holiness, the sanctification of our members. Uh, we're going to be so limited in what we can do in this world for the glory of God mm-hmm. if we're not concerned about our own internal life as a congregation. Yeah. Who are we? What is our membership like? Are we pursuing holiness? If we're not, our evangelism is not going to be effective. Yeah. Our missions are not going to be effective. Our work in the community is not going to be effective. Yeah, that's that's a great word. And it just it reminds me, and this might be a good way to wrap this up, is why do we practice church discipline? Why should a church practice church discipline? We should have several goals in mind. And it's not to get rid of the trouble. Maker. It's not mm-hmm. to make the lives of the elders easier so you don't have to deal with problem sheep. It's not that. What is it? Uh, the glory of God mm-hmm. and what you just described. You know, this is Christ's church. He's the head of it. This church represents him in the world. We're an outpost of the kingdom of heaven, and we are to demonstrate by the way we live the power of the gospel. What does the gospel do? Ephesians 3.10, that we display the manifold wisdom of God to these unseen principalities and powers. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't do that if you let sin just go on unaddressed in the church. So the glory of God. But then the the, the welfare, the good of the errant brother or sister. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm playing with a rattlesnake and you slap it out of my hand, you may hurt my hand, but you've probably saved my life. You certainly saved me grave injury. And we love you enough to do this. I and mean, that's, you know, you got young kids. When our kids were young, we would regularly tell them, though, after we had to correct them or in the process of that, say, so you know that I love you too much to let you get away with this. I love you too much. I've got to do this because I care for you. So you, you love the errant brother or sister, and you're trying to recover them. You don't want to see them go on a pathway that will take them to hell if they don't repent. And then the good of the congregation. You know, for the purity of the church, for that manifestation of the power of the gospel that the scripture talks about, and for other people. In the Old Testament, it's interesting, and we, we have this in First Corinthians or First Timothy five in dealing with discipline for elders. There is a part of this that works sanctifying grace in those who participate as a congregation. Mm-hmm. The Old Testament talks about so that they might hear and fear. Hear and fear. Because whenever a church member has to be corrected, and if they refuse to be corrected and have to be removed from the membership, every church member should look at that and say, you know what, except for God's grace, that could be me. Mm-hmm. That could be me. There's no difference between me and this person except the grace of God and for the evangelistic opportunities that come from it. We've actually seen people converted in our church because of the practice of discipline. Mm-hmm. It's like, what in the world happened? You know, I've just heard about this and they've come, I've you know had multiple conversations like this over the years. One in particular I'm thinking of now, a guy who uh, said, I just, I've never heard of this and I heard you guys did this. What's up with this? And through that, God saved him. Um, anyway, church discipline is something that is a mark of a church. It is certainly of the essence of a church, I would argue, but it's mm-hmm. it's of the benesse of the church. It's it, You can't have a healthy church without it. And I would argue if you just completely jettison it, you, you can't even have a church. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So we got some good resources that Founders has published that we mm-hmm. want to tell you about as well. 
1689 Confession, chapter 26, is on the church. It's really good. encourage you to get that and read it. But here's a book. It's one of the early books we published called Life in the Body of Christ, Privileges and Responsibilities in the Local Church by Curtis Thomas. And so this is a practical guidebook. You can use this in small group studies uh, in your church. Read it for your own benefit as well. And then Wyman Richardson wrote a book on regenerate church membership, reclaiming that. And again, uh, in all through the idea of church discipline is regenerate church membership. So on earth as it is in heaven, reclaiming regenerate church membership in local churches today. So we encourage you to get these resources. They can benefit you. Uh, Commit your ways to Christ. Remember that the Lord of every local church is Jesus Christ. So honor him. It's God's house. He sets the rules and we are responsible to try to follow those rules. Thanks for joining us today on The Sword and the Trial.